What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) If I was to mention to you something like Audi, Porsche, BMW, what would come to mind? German quality engineering. Exactly. Mm. So if I was to say to you German shepherds and duchies from Germany, what would then come to mind? House Hamburg. Why is that? Because probably some of the best German shepherds and duchies on the planet come from House Hamburg German shepherds and duchies because you know who breeds those bad boys? Patrick and Alicia Lockett. They're a power couple in the dog breeding, brokering, selling and shipping them all over the world. And they po po world as well. Yeah. Yeah. Both they po po guys. Yeah. Yeah. They know their shit and they, they breed good dogs and they can ship them to you anywhere in the world. And now a proud sponsor of the canine paradigm. Yep. Mm. So if you're after one of those bad boys, get in touch with them. Yep. House Amberg. House Amberg. House Amberg. Wait, before we fade off into oblivion, we've got to mention their website. Yes. You can get in contact with them at Shepherds, <laughs> 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 And that's H-A-U-S-A-M-B-E-R-G-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-S. So it's house like a German house. Dot com. Wow. Or you can find them on Facebook. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Guess what? What? New year, new ad. Oh, I like it. I thought you were going to say new year, new you. Nah, I'm still the same shitty version of me. <laughs> you know who's not a shitty version of themselves anymore? Go ahead and tell me. The boof head. The fading boof head? Eins a wiener. Oh, my God. Einswick dog quip. Yes. Jason's only half the man he was uh, a year ago. I know. He's on an amazing journey. But Incredible. he still sells- Amazing equipment. The best equipment you can get in Australia. Yes, he does. If you want dog training equipment- He's the only man to go to. Yep. It turns out it's not just equipment either. He did those cages for my car. I know. And they're fucking rad. They are really good. Yeah. He's like, got a new range of stuff. There's a new line of gear. I think it's called Klim or something like that. Klein. Klein, is it? Yeah, I think Klein. Klein. That's okay. how I read it. Yeah, Klim Klein. Anyway, they make mad stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. So I've got to do a little review for him on that, but go and check out his website because he has got one. Yes. Yeah. Ein's a wiener dog quip. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but say that. Einzweck. E I N Z W E C K. Yep. Is it? Is that correct? Yeah. Einzweck? Yeah. Einzweck dog quip. Check it out. If you're in Australia, that's the only place you should be getting your dog gear from. Yep. None of those other places. That's right. Just go straight to the buffet. Yeah. Just say, hey, buffet, give us a deal. Now, I know you North Americans mm. are probably just like, God damn. What I about wish us? I could buy some of that what stuff. What about me? Yeah. So I think if you want treadmills, you can actually still get them through Jason because mm-hmm. he sort of just is the middle guy anyway. And he knows he that. knows who's making the good meals yeah, he and knows who's meals. not. Yep. Mm. But if you want other dog training equipment. Mach le point. Mach le point. Yes. Yeah. It's French for Mark. All around good guy, Canadian. Amazing guy. Mac very, very good man. Yeah. Yep. And he's got everything. He's like Canine Dynamics has bite training equipment, leashes, tugs, all the normal stuff you'd expect to see. They are the, dynamic. Yeah. Mm. His website is much better than Jason. <laughs> 
How dare you say? <laughs> it's a fact too. I actually was a client of Canon Dynamics before mm-hmm. we knew MacLapoint. Yes. And the, the purchase process was seamless. Yeah. The website's amazing. It's very good. It's very detailed and it's laid out well. And he yeah. covers all of North America, yeah. which Canada is included in that as well. Well, yeah. he's in Canada. Yeah. Ma- Canada Dynamics is Canadian. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so, yeah. he's in Ottawa, isn't he? Uh, something like that. Yeah. No. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's in North we America. Still love him. If you want dog training And equipment, he supports our show. Thank get you. Get it from there. Thank you, Mark Point. We have one other sponsor. Yes. Melanie Benware. Yep. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Yep. From the train town itself, Ashland, Virginia. Yep. So if you need in-home behavior modification. Yep. She'll come around and look at it. We did a whole dog. episode on we did. the way she does it. She yeah. very kindly gave away her whole business model to she everybody. Yeah. At so the end of 2020. The homeschool program. If you know someone that needs the homeschool program, yep. get them on to Melody Benway, Kindred yes. Canine. Yep. Or, you know what? what? People should probably, if they want to learn more about homeschool program beyond what she gave away for free on the show. Great idea. They should get in contact with her and yep. she should charge them to teach them about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mel, we just opened up a whole new revenue stream for you. Absolutely. You're welcome. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us all the way from Plant City, Florida is Ivan Balabanov. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Nice to finally make it to your show. Very excited to talk dogs with you. Thank you very much, Ivan. I know you're an extremely busy guy and you've got so much going on over there. We've tried to do this once before and we had a little bit of a technical difficulty, but nonetheless, here we are. And as I was saying, the first time we tried to record this, you have been our number one requested guest on the show. What do you say to that? I mean, I'm flattered. I'm excited that hopefully we can deliver what the people want and make some nice conversation. I have no idea where we're going to go with it because that's the cool thing about it. Not to set up a topic and just go on and see what happens and in my experience, those are the most beautiful conversations that we have. So it's good to yeah. give a reason for not preparing at all. Mm. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> we call it organic, but really it's just not preparing very well. I think one of the good head starters for the show would be to talk about things that are important to you in the dog world. I know that you've done plenty of origin stories in the past, and that probably gets very tiring for you to do that over and over again. So why don't we lay it down with what's been important to you and or things that you're thinking about at the moment, how you've changed, whatever you really want to talk about. There you go. That's an easy start, right? Whew. So where do I go with this? I've been training dogs for quite some time. Like, I mean, I don't want to say 40 years, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but- yeah, I, I really, I've, I've trained dogs. I've been breeding dogs. It's, I mean, my life is just preoccupied with it. That's all I do. I read, I study behavior, etiology, evolution, and try to apply everything that I can think of, come up with some interesting ideas, and eventually test them, go to competitions and put everything in and see how it stands to the test breeding is a really 
big thing for me. I'm very, very interested in it. I've been breeding Malinois since 1989. I was fortunate enough that I lived a few years in Belgium. Most of the young listeners probably can only see those dogs in maybe 10 generations in their pedigrees of Malinois. But those were the dogs that really started everything. I don't talk about that too much. So this could be an interesting conversation. Dogs like, you know, going back to Luc Vansdebrouche, the Diopoutois, the kennel in Belgium, with Elgos, Bieber, GV2, So Ivan, did you work Elgos? Did you? I actually worked all of them. Yeah, amazing. I didn't even, you know, they'd be, I mean, they were super famous and I knew that they are, but you know, uh, with time, the, they become legends. Yeah. Mm. It's very fortunate that I actually personally have interacted and I mean, they've all, they can bite on me, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's cool. I, I have some videos of the old VHS tapes and unfortunately, just like with books, you give it to friends. And eventually everything disappeared. And it's very unfortunate because in nowadays, I mean, I had at least four or five hours of each dog doing things, training and just messing around and doing all sorts of cool stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and all those videos are gone. And I'm still hoping that somehow somebody at least will decide to, to pause them somewhere because it's a really valuable history. That's super interesting to me. Let's explore that a little bit more because when I first got into dogs, you hear these stories about dogs and they are legends. And and I think very often stories get better with every telling. Um, and, <laughs> right. and, you know, I'm guilty of that. Everybody's guilty of that. And, and I remember hearing about a particular dog here in Australia that was the pinnacle of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everybody talked about all this. And then I got the opportunity to work the dog and the dog was good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the dog wasn't good, but there were things that nobody spoke about and that aren't visible in a video of the dog, like where his eyes were when he was biting. And, you know, when you put pressure on like, yeah, he stays in the grip, but does the grip change? And just little things that you could never know unless you actually work the dog. And that for me, it really, it was life-changing when I worked that dog because I then realized like, oh shit, all these stories about these other dogs, I can't believe any of them, right? I, having not actually been there and not being the one in the suit. And when I was pursuing bloodlines to four people in Australia, I really pursued the PSA stuff because I know the dogs, right? Like I don't have to go by the stories, like I've worked the dogs. And so I can tell you, this is the truth of that dog because I've been in that seat. But You've worked the actual legends, right? So tell us more about that. It's really true what you're saying. And that's normal how with time, anything that's good becomes better. And with more time, it becomes great. And it's unfortunate that we didn't have the technology that we have right now. Mm. But there is always, I mean, we, we're going to most likely that conversations heading towards talking about genetics and breeding, but um, the, the coolest thing about those legends was not just that they were really superior in, in qualities as, and like Elgos would bite and he would stay on a bite. And it's not like a lazy bite. It's actually, there is very, very serious pressure, uh, but he can stay there 
it's just kind of like, I know we're going to end up talking jujitsu stuff too, but like somebody going to roll for four hours and be completely comfortable doing it. He would mm-hmm. bite like this and he would stay there and he would not, you know, it's just very interesting mindset he had and he would always search for that bite and he would just zone out. But again, the difference between some dogs that do that, they kind of get into the sleepiness and almost like, you know, how some dogs suck on mm-hmm. suckling on a squeaky toys and like a Zen state for them. Right. It, it, it's not like that, that the intention never goes away, you know, but it's hard to compare training. I mean, it does like late eighties. This is when I late eighties, you know, got to experience a lot of the Belgian style training and I didn't know as much at the time myself. So I, I was going by intuition and, and what people tell me, but um, the training itself, like even then I knew that it was not, that there is, was so much room for improvement and somehow, you know, they were doing what they're doing and I, I'm not, like this, I don't want this to come out wrong because for some reason, whatever they're doing, it sticks even today. Like, I mean, they still, if anybody's maintaining Malinois as a breed, it's that community. So mm-hmm. we can talk that the training is shitty and maybe some of the breedings or whatever, but overall, I am very thankful and grateful that they, they're still doing it and they're still doing it the same way because it's some, in some way preserves the quality of the breed. Mm-hmm. So back to the legends, I think where they really became legends was the, the reproducing themselves, the ability to actually reproduce themselves with many different females that they were bred to, you know, and it wasn't a matter of specific combination. You breed to one of those dogs and, you're guaranteed that no matter what you breed them with, there's going to be a few puppies in the leaders that, that will carry that same qualities. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a, probably the, the most amazing part about the dogs. And even now, I like the Belgian lines. It's not to say that there is no cool dogs in Germany or in Belgium or Czech or whatever country, you know, but the majority of dogs that I know that I like personally, they would end up going back to these roots. And your own dogs no. are that, right? Like your original breeding female was from, you got when you're in Belgium. Am I right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's a cool story maybe. So when I moved to Belgium, I did not even know, uh, not that I, I knew Malinois, but I never really seen one live. And I've only seen some copy of a copy of a VHS tape of some competitions that you, you don't see nothing. I mean, it's all scrambled. It's just mm-hmm. ridiculous, but people would talk about it. And I was living in Eastern Europe, which was, you know, I mean, we had the wall, there was the cold war. It was an easy access to anything for us. So eventually that was really the main reason I had to escape the country and move on. When I went to Belgium, I got introduced to uh, Luc, well, the, the owner of the Delio Poutois, who at that time was really the only person that when you give the, say the, the breed name, the association was immediate, you know, with him. So 
I was lucky, fortunate to have access. And I, I went and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get a puppy. And yeah, you know how that goes. You're in La La Land, living in the clouds and dreaming high. You're going to win everything. You're going to have the best thing. You have all the options and you're going to get the best puppy from the best place and so on. So I go there. He speaks French. I, I barely speak even English at the time. So initially, you know, us talking was not so easy. We, we needed people to help us. And I went and I'm, I'm going to get a puppy, right? So there is, I mean, he had a lot of dogs, like a lot of dogs. And he had also just females all over the place with, with other friends of his. So when, when I arrived there at his house, man, I remember this like it was yesterday. And this is like really, really long time ago. <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy. And so there was a little, very cool, like maybe eight week old, super dark, just stunning looking puppy walking around the house. Only this one puppy. And, you know, you just, I have not seen anything else, but I'm like, I, I want this one. And he's like, this is, you, you don't want this one. I'm like, no, I want this one. So, we're going back and forth if I do or I don't. And he, I can see he's starting to get frustrated with me. So he's asking my friend, he's like, are you sure he wants to go and compete? What, what does he want to do? Why, what do we want to give him? He's like, no, no, he's going to, he, he wants to do the sports. And so he's like, well, that's not the puppy for him. And I'm thinking backwards. I'm like, man who knows who that puppy is promised to. Uh, and I just want him. I'm like, I'm going to pay double. And you know the story. Mm-hmm. The guy gets upset. He's like, let me at least show you the, the puppy that I have in mind. So he brings this female that's, I don't know, maybe much older, maybe let's say 14 weeks or 15 weeks old. Big white chest white pose and a female. I mean, it just completely out of what I was thinking about. Right. And, and especially that he was older, I guess she went to Switzerland to somebody and they returned her because she had too much white on her. Right. Of course I studied later on the white and, and, I, I have a very different appreciation of it now, but uh, at the time, you know, you look at that little eight week old, just super dark, stunning looking puppy male. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to do this. I'm ready to go home. So we really started. I mean, it was a very tense situation, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm nobody to, to even demand or, but I, I had a good friend with me and talking with them and, Eventually, to keep that story a little short, he ended up giving me both dogs. He's like, oh, yeah, you're taking this, you're taking the female, you're taking the one you like, and in three weeks, you're bringing one back, whatever you want to do. And yeah, of course, I brought the pretty one back and I mm-hmm. kept the female, which turned to be my uh, founding brute female, you know. And since then, that was kind of probably the first time that I was like, man, genetics, it's just something different. And I didn't know much how, how much influence it is. And then, you know, 
Would you consider that like, you know, you wanting that dog and him being so insistent, that would be a, a huge life moment for you, right? Like when you reflect on that, that's not just, you know, a dog that you got from some guy. Like the fact that he was willing to argue over that with you and the one that you eventually took later became the the foundation stock of what's been thousands of dogs or a thousand dogs at least that you've bred since. That's a huge pivoting point in your life. Imagine he had just been like, yeah, yeah, sweet. Take the pretty one. Off you go. Imagine the different trajectory that your whole life would be on now and your experience with dogs and then your impact to the dog training community would be different again. It's fascinating to me to think about the branch plan on that, right? And how different life could have been for you. Yeah, no question. The so-called butterfly effect, right? Mm. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Well, we only can speculate. Who knows? I probably would have given it a try and maybe I would have ended up with a different breed even. Who knows? Mm. But the Malinois were really, I knew that I want to have them without seeing them live. And the moment I saw the very first one live working in a dog club, it was crazy because the dog, he had such a insane overbite. I mean, he looked like a parrot, you know, like, <laughs> like really, but still when you saw the energy or maybe, maybe it was just my imagination and I, I just glorified it so much that it didn't matter what I'm seeing. It was amazing anyway. But the first one that I saw, it already just, I, I was like, yeah, there's no question. That's, that's what I'm doing. Then I ended up learning, of course, more of the different types of them. And because you have like a, like the, the old Belgian breeders, you know, they can talk to you a lot about the different lines, but not even just the different lines, but the, the temperaments and the characters of the dogs. And I, even in my breeding program right now, is something that I always try to keep in mind uh, because it gets harder and harder to have consistently stable and good dogs. And one of the cool descriptions that I, when I talk dogs and when I teach something about breedings, I always talk about, they would divide them in more primitive type and the other one more trainable. And then you always make a combination between the two and then eventually ultimately you have a third type, mm -hmm. but you don't want to stick to the third type, the one that is the combination because you're going to lose what you have. So even though the primitive and trainability put together, produce nice dogs, you always have to be able to find a way how to split them and maintain mm -hmm. the primitive dogs. They're super important. So there were, there was time back in those days that you kind of knew where to find them and which dogs were, it was interesting time, especially, you know, you didn't have working dog. You didn't have YouTube. You, you just, you know, word by mouth and a lot of traveling and drinking who knows what with <laughs> so many different people, but you know, it was great times, but, um, Mate, while we're talking genetics, I just want to sort of steer the conversation just a little bit. About a month ago on the show, we were talking about puppies and stuff, and we were referencing the Superdog program that basically said that at 16 weeks, you there really was no telling whether a dog would pan out or not. And I kind of hypothesized something that I would like to see an old bloodline 
or a breeder with their own old bloodline do that experiment again and see whether they had different results. And it was actually you I had in mind mm. when I was when I was saying that because you've had your own bloodline for 30 plus years. You are, you know, very involved with all the puppies and as near as I can tell you you do track the dogs as close as possible, right? Who goes where, how do they compete? You have a genuine interest in that. So what level of accuracy do you think you can determine in your puppies? that they're going to pan out to be suitable for sport or work or whatever. And, and and have you identified over the years like key markers that would indicate that to you? And do you think you could predict with a better level of accuracy than the Superdog program did? So from what I know, the Superdog program was basically the idea was to to stimulate and entice and wake up and promote and develop a little more kind of speed up and possibly get something more out of the puppy that may just remain dormant for the rest of the life. At least mm-hmm. that that's kind of my understanding of what they were trying to do. I did myself, of course, when, when I first heard of that. I probably have done any tests that were out there that were known or any development programs that were well-known. I played with and I personally don't find them valuable. I, I shouldn't say that, that that kind of coming out wrong. It's not that they're not valuable. It's kind of, you know, the, the one book that I talk, uh, Pat, at, the, at my course, uh, the blueprint mm-hmm. of uh, Robert, uh, yep. what was his name? Plumman. And he has this one saying that was really cool. It's, it's always sticks in my head. It's the parent's mother but they don't make a difference, mm-hmm. you know, just emphasizing how powerful genetics are. It's not to say that if you, if you neglect nurturing and you have not good parenthood, you know, like, of course things will not end up as good as they could, mm. but on the same token, like there's just so many, I, I highly recommend that book to anybody that's interested in, in genetics. There's a couple of books that I recommend, but this is definitely one of my top two that, you know, they, all the twin studies that they've done. And there, there was a very cool one about, I think it was three identical twins, which is not that common. Not typically this is a on, only uh, two twins. But identical twins, basically, the genetic component, uh, you know, the DNA, it's like a cloned. Mm-hmm. That, that's why it's the identical, right? It's not the, the other type. So it's, it's, they're absolutely the same genetics. And they ended up, it was in England. So the woman that had the babies, she gave them for adoption. Actually, she put them in orphanage and they put them in adoption in a bunch of different like one went to a average, you know, middle-class home and went to a very, very wealthy place and so on. The gist of the story is that no matter how they were raised by some pure luck, they ended up seeing each other at one university. There is even a movie on this that I did. And that, that led to a lot after that whole sensation, you know, then, then there was a lot of scientific interest to how they developed and how they, and then, to just to find out how the power of genetics, like you, you really cannot 
manipulate it that much. You can guide it, you can nurture it, but you cannot go against it. And even if you go against it, within time, given the opportunity, the puppy, the dog, or the human will always go back to what's called the home base. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your basic programming that you came with. And so that's kind of with the dogs, you know, when, um, when you do breedings and you do testing, now I'm far more interested in trying to find similarities of something that reminds me. Like, for example, I would have dogs, like certain dogs, that they would just act in a very specific way. They would lay down when they drink water, for example, or they would be biting or they, you know, just, just random behaviors, but you think that they're random until you realize that they're not. Mm. So I would have, um, right now, we're just about trying to make a video before the oldest one of them goes away because she's 14, 13, she's 13 now, but I have her, I know, four generations before her. I have her, I have a daughter of her, I have a son of her, and they all will do a certain behavior to get attention. Like they will kind of put their head, like their forehead on you, lean on you. Mm -hmm. But it's a, a lot of those who do it, but there is difference when you see it exactly the same, mm -hmm. in exactly the same situations. So going back to actual Superdog or any of the programs, I, I never saw any difference, like any difference. And trust me, I would do it. I would keep doing it if I saw something that is like, okay, there is something that just, of course I would do it. Of course I would do it. But I had the opportunity that, you know, I mean, I breed dogs and I breed quite a bit and I know my lines. I know what I have. So I could leave half of the leader and I can mess with half of the leader. Mm -hmm. And then we see where they go. And then I see them, you know, like, okay, I'm going to do the Q-tips. I'm going to lift them up head down, put them in a little cold and so on that, you know, half of the leader, the other one, they just eat and crawl and poop and pee. And eight weeks, there was no difference. A year later, there was no difference. And that wasn't, I didn't do it one time. I did quite a bit. I mean, I, I would say I probably did four leaders like that. I remember me, I, I lived in, that was uh, the time that I lived in, in San Francisco. It was crazy time because um, I lived in a condominium, downtown San Francisco. And you're breathing and, there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my landlord knew uh, that I have one dog. <laughs> They're Malino, so I'm. I, I mean, that was it was hectic because I live in, lived in a second floor, so I have to take only one at a time. It was a big production, uh, you know. But then having the puppies, that was not easy. And but this was the time when I actually did a whole litter like religiously and, and it wasn't just me i mean we had few people that did that we we did it with one of them was katya o'brien she she was one of the very first people that at the time we did mondio ring which you know like i bred the dog and 
I trained the dog and she, I believe she was the first one to compete internationally in, in Mondial. She was really big in all this, just, you know, she had the time and it was very interested in all these researches. So she would always come up with this. So I'm like, just go ahead and do them. You know, I did not have time, but I was very curious. Of course, why, I mean, why not? It, it, doesn't, it didn't look like it's going to hurt anything. So yeah, we did it. But yeah, unfortunately, I really don't see any difference mm-hmm. or any, any significant difference, let's say. It's kind of, you know, when you talk like, I talk about this on my course. I'm sure I'm going to keep mentioning my course quite a bit, um, but I, I, you know, it keeps in coming into my mind. When we talk about uh, Skinner, one of his biggest things was the errorless learning. Mm-hmm. So he developed those machines, some ridiculous version of the computers that we have now, looked more like a typewriter and, and any of the people that are interested further, they can go on YouTube and can see it. And the idea was that, you know, kids will learn without making mistakes. And if they make mistakes, the mistakes get ignored, the good behavior gets reinforced. And apparently it was a big boom and it was supposed to just take over. And he never did never did. The reason I'm bringing this up is because if programs like this really worked, we all will be doing them. You know, like there is no question we all will be doing them. I did um, another one that was very interesting as far as puppy testing was uh, Clarence Pfaffenberg. And he came from, I think it was, man, I'm so horrible with names remembering, but I believe the, the, one guy named was Fuller something. And then Pfaffenberg came later. And the reason I knew of him was because he claimed that um, he designed this puppy program for the guide dogs for the blind in California, which I worked for five years later on. First, I read the book and I was very excited to see the program firsthand because he was explaining how before the puppy program and that whole testing, selecting and development in specific certain ways, which guide dogs had a very good, huge selection of breeding dogs and the 4-H family and the volunteers, just endless number of people that you definitely can put some structure and really do some interesting work with. So they definitely were playing around with this for for decades, the claim was that the dogs that would graduate successfully as guide dogs at the time before that program was in place was 50%. And after that became 80%. Wow. When I started working, it was still 50% and it never changed. So there's like a few times that I really straight confronted this test and Again, I, I am sure there are people that swear by them. I believe far more in genetics. Again, I do not think that, of course, it's important how you bring up the puppy, but I don't believe in, in that kind of magic that you can, you can make something that is not there. And yeah. if it's there with the right time, it will come up if you want it to come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's kind of my belief in this. Yeah, you can't um, put in what nature one, has I can tell you is uh, interesting also because I also worked for 
uh, probably also five, six years in an animal shelter. It was the San Francisco SPCA. It was the, at the time, the very first no-kill shelter in the whole world. I mean, I'm saying that just because no particular reason, but the, the interesting thing about that was I was, you know, one of the people that would test, evaluate and decide if it's worth to adopt the dog successfully. If, it, if the success will, you know, we have success to, to adopt that dog or not. And we ended up with all sorts of dogs. And I tell you, San Francisco was a, a very big underground fighting dogs. And I, I went through that a lot. Like I actually, even now I'm trying to erase some of the memories that I've seen when they, we would go and bust rings and it's just, just horrible stuff. Mm. But I've had dogs that would come, young puppies, especially the, the bully breeds. I think they're just a different level of resilience. And there's a lot of confusion and misconceptions about them that we might end up talking later on. But they would come and we know for a fact that they have never, ever in their short life, being three months old or four months old, been outside their backyard. The only thing they have heard is the car noises. They have not even seen a car. They have not seen more than two people. Mm-hmm. They come to the shelter, they act like they own it. I put them on a leash. They don't know how to walk on a leash, but they walk and they see things and they just accept or it's kind of like, you know, in in your previous life, you just know it and it just happened now that you see it again. Mm -hmm. That's how they acted. And like, I would take it to stairs, to escalators, to elevators, to the trams, and they would be not twitching, but it's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're just oblivious. They're very curious, very exploring, but super confident. Just genetically, environmentally just sound. Genetically super sound. Yeah. And yes, you, we can do things and we should do things with the weaker dogs. But uh, I think there is just in, in our society as a whole, Besides dog training and breeding, we believe that we can change genetics. You know, just this, the, the fact that if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. Just, just slogans like this are so horrible. I think they're very harmful, actually, because they put unnecessarily pressure on people and dogs that are absolutely not capable to be the same as somebody else. Mm, yeah. And while they can actually be better if they do something that they are good at, right? We have a, an issue of that in Australia, and, and I think it's happening all around the world. There's like a lack of tradespeople, right? So like a plumber can make $200,000 a year in Australia because so many people were you know, steered away from that. It's like everybody should go to higher education. Everybody mm. should go to university. This is what you should do. And I think that we created a lot of really unhappy, unemployed people who were educated to a really high degree and probably that's not the path that was right for them. They, you know, like 
I certainly was not good at school and I'm lucky I fell into the army and that kind of was my destiny. But a lot of my friends left school in year 10, the sort of hooligans that I hung out with, and they're wildly successful, very happy people because they pursued the path that was right for them rather than being corralled into the path that like society said they should be. And then I often extrapolate that to dogs and go like, we're trying to force these dogs to live in a way that they just don't want to live. And we're trying to put them in positions and train them through environments that they just don't want to be in. Mm. 100%. Like, I, I could not agree more with you on this. Like, I, I really cannot agree more on this. It's almost the difference of being a happy and joyful and productive and person that can contribute versus a person that's going to just be depressed and lack confidence and just hide because they give it all and they think that they're worthless. And it's the same with dogs. It really is the same with dogs. You know, the, the one thing, I mean, obviously, I, I also am very passionate about competition for few reasons, which we will get there. But what I wanted to say about this is when, like, let's say, and I'm also a FCI working judge too. So when a good judge is judging whatever the competition, I mean, if it's a NVBK or, or a PSA or a IGP, whatever it is, but when you are the responsible person to select the champion, you're looking at several things, or let's put it this way. You should look at several things and trainability and the mastery of how good the trainer skills are to bring that dog up are important, but that's not the most important part. Mm. It really, how, well, that dog genetically who he is, and this is the difficult part to, that's why some judges have that experience and some just don't have the knowledge to be able to, to say what's training, what's genetics. A lot of times it can be confusing, especially some programs not really exposing and trying to separate the two. But if you have a dog that's going to be a champion, he's going to have to be a champion and we need to understand that that dog's going to be bred. I mean, it's mm. going to be bred the hell out of it. And we're going to have many more of that. So if we are breeding to what the trainer has done, that would not be productive as in, in the big picture of improving or maintaining the qualities of the breed. Mm -hmm. So we really need to look into the training component, of course, because that makes the point. But you need to look at what the raw material is. And hopefully you can have that skill and the eye to look deep enough to where you can strip the training and see what you need to see as far as the ability and the quality of the dog itself. Yeah. And so in some ways, when a very good judge will pick a champion, he's picking in both. And this is why it's not so easy to really to be competing against everybody in the world and become a world champion because you need to have the skill, you need to have the luck, you need to have amazing training, and you need to have a special dog. And we do have special dogs. It's not that we don't, but somehow we rush them and we think that we will do some things and the dogs that are 
genetically not capable, we believe that with good training program, we can make difference. And we do make difference, but that difference still has limitations. And it's important for us to be realistic. And like, if, if we take that and look at that, it's like, it's so much easier and so much fun for the dogs when the dog is doing what they want to do instead of, oh, I'm a very good trainer and I know so many different ways I'm going to make him do what I want him to do. Mm-hmm. It's really forcing the dog into something just like parents will take the kid and he's going to play tennis three, four times a week. He has no choice. He's going to play until one day they're going to realize that, okay, he's, he's not good. Mm-hmm. They're going to leave them alone. But meanwhile, that was a wasted time. But besides that, imagine that kids, just the way it looks at the world and, and the confidence level and just the, how it looks at sports. And, you know, you didn't pay attention to find what that dog or what that kid wants to mm. do, what he has talent for. And this is a really bad thing that goes on in the training world today. Trainers are preoccupied with techniques and, and it's not even about the dog. That's the, one of the other sad things. It's not about let's make that dog be the best it can be. It's about, let me see what I can do mm-hmm. as a trainer. It's always about me as a trainer and the dog is a secondary and it sucks for the dogs. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what you see, but when I go around, I see a lot of that. Yeah. Do you think, this actually feeds really well into a project I'm working on. It's kind of a longer form video I'm trying to make. And at some point I'd love to talk to you about it, but maybe I can steal it from this episode <laughs> is in regards to dog sport, there's a lot, you know, there's newer sports like PSA that's only 20 years old and there's IGP, you know, decades and KMPV over a hundred years old without really changing very much. Which sport do you think is the best test of training and genetics of the dog and why? Best training and genetics. Oof. Yeah. So these are the questions that are always interesting and always become hot topics. I know my answers. I'm just trying to see how, you know, like I've, I've trained dogs in pretty much every sport besides PSA, but I did, um, I was very familiar with the the personal protection sports that were prior to, mm-hmm. but they would not last. They, they were, you know, they would, something will come up and be three years and then another one will come up and another five years and like pro sport. And yeah, there was few, I can't remember, but in the nineties, it was, uh, it yeah. was a mess, a bunch of them trying to do, and they were all good, but somehow never made it. And in all honesty, when, Jerry started a PSA. I was like, okay, that's not going to go. I mean, that's going to be another three years and it's going to end, but here we are. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm very glad. And I think with some more time, I think the, just as you said, the sport is in, even though it's 20 years, 20 years is not enough for uh, the quality and the understanding what we're really looking for and what we want to get out of the dog and the training. Uh, I think it needs a little bit more time, but uh, ultimately right now from what I know and what I, when I watch it and I do watch it, it looks like if you pass level three, you 
chances are you're going to win the thing. There will be time when, if the sport persists, which I think it will, more people will get involved. The training is going to improve. And now we're going to have better level of dogs and training. And that's going to put pressure on the way the program is judged. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be just, okay, well, this one clearly failed. So he, he's not good. And this one is champion because he passed. There's going to be time that we're going to have to decide between two dogs that are pretty equal. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some conflicts of how we decide until we come up with a structure of what we are looking for. The older programs, of course, have been through that many times. And then they, the judges and the breeders and the trainers, know much more and, and the criteria is higher. So they get to reap the benefits of that. Most people know me as an IPO person, but I mean, if you come to my place, you'll see, I don't know, at least five or six bite suits of, from Belgium to French to mm-hmm. semi to whatever you want. As I said, I, I, we did, was one of the very first people that did Mondio and you know, without any influence of anywhere. Every once in a while, I also do French ring. I help a lot of people with it too. I like IGP or IPO or Schutzhund because it's very precise what we're looking for. So like if you think about tracking, like anyone that's not familiar with the IGP, the Schutzhund style tracking, it's very it's it's almost to the point that it's artificial. Very stylized. Like you're teaching the dog how to do it instead of allowing him to do what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. Because the time that a dog can just pass the track and win a competition are long gone. Now, most dogs, if not all dogs, can pass the track. So then it became, well, which dog veers off steps outside the track a little bit more than the other and all that put pressure and challenged the abilities of the trainers to make the training more and more precise to where we are at the point now that excellent tracking dog will not miss a footstep will not check outside the footstep through the whole track And that's a very unnatural way. Like when you compare that kind of tracking to any trailing, you know, such and rescue police dogs, whatever it's, it's like a real tracking is about destination. It's about Mm -hmm. objective, you know? Yeah. I found myself explaining to a few people that an IPO dog really should lead a policeman into an ambush. You know, he would know the bad guy is over here to our flank, but I'm going to walk through the ambush around to him because he's, footsteps go this way. So it's not very real. It's not very useful in the real world for finding bad guys, finding lost kids. Sure. Whatever. But like it would lead you into the killing zone of an ambush. And I agree with that. But, but having said that also a dog that's has the talent, which in IGP with the level of competition, you need a dog that has the talent that has the genetic makeup to, to be good send dog. Mm -hmm. And that means if we make the analogies of a martial arts and fighting, you can have somebody that will do beautiful job on the ground that 
he has not that great of an experience in jujitsu. Mm-hmm. I mean, he will have just enough skill to protect and get up and do what he needs to do. The, the reason I'm saying this is when you have a dog that genetically has that potential, it's very easy to switch him. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And some of the benefits of the IGP tracking in a real world come much later in terms of like older trucks where the air scent is not that strong mm-hmm. and where we are looking for some tiny things. Evidence. As, yeah, like, you know, mm. so there, there is a, definitely a purpose for that. But the reason I was going there is because of there is a lot of good trainers. There is a lot of good dogs and it's all around the world. And the competition is really fierce that, you know, like we were talking a point difference between first, second, third, and fourth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with tight points. And when you see that, you start to, to be like, okay, this is almost, uh, it's, it's crazy for sure. But you think on one hand, we can think, oh, this is the same as, yeah, he beat me by a point, but I'm just as good. But, you know, you can look at the horse races or Olympic swimmers or whatever, you know, and then they get, we're talking tenths of a tenth of a second and yeah. on the, you know, video trying to figure it out who is the winner. And you think, yeah, they're all the same. But if the winner wins consistently with tenth of a second over everybody in the next three years, there is something very special. Because uh, the level of competition, the level of training, the understanding, the genetics, everything is so close, but still one prevails consistently just by a hair. And that's, that's amazing to me. Mm. It's scary and, though to think, you know, like when you use the example of horse racing, swimming, we're using laser measurement devices to determine that. Like a watch, you know, how often do you watch a at the Olympics, a hundred meter sprint. And we're all waiting to be told at the end, we saw the, the finish line, but we're all waiting for the instant the, replay. Yeah. The video that was filmed in 300 frames per second for us to actually know which frame did the guy cross it in and, and who's the real winner. What I find scary about that with dog sports is we're relying on the eyeball of one judge to decide that. Right. And that's correct. But, but so the difference is again, like if, if that team, wins by a hair that competition with that judge and then the next competition in the fall with a different judge Mm -hmm. and then the next year and now there is like okay yeah what are you doing different Mm -hmm. and how is your dog genetically different because again like um the that's where it gets so tricky with competitions and that's the amazing part when the competition is it's so competitive and everybody, it's like you, you need, you need the top level of training. You need the best genetics and you've got to be able to put it all together and you got to stay consistent. It's not this one wonder hit. So this is the, you know, probably why I like IGP. I have really high level of respect to the program. Another big one is the fact that the emotions 
you know, how the dog performs, how the dog feels while he's on the field are evaluated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're evaluated to the point that if the dog doesn't feel comfortable and clearly is like, I don't want to be here, you get disqualified and you may have a beautiful performance, but you get disqualified. And the reason you get disqualified is actually, I really like it because you, if you don't get disqualified and you're judged by actually how the dog is performing the exercises, you may even win a competition. Mm-hmm. What will happen is you, we will end up promoting the training that you do. So if your dog is suppressed, for whatever reason, your dog is suppressed, we're going to end up with more dogs being suppressed next year. Mm-hmm. And now we know that we can have dogs that are feeling comfortable, they enjoy, and they're reliable. And the bar has been raised maybe to some point almost too high, but that's where we are. And I think it's really cool that we can judge the training so we can get behaviors, but we are not just chasing the behavior themselves, but we are also evaluating how the dog feels, how much the dog wants to be there and participate. Or is the dog just wanting to do something, but it's constantly suppressed and, and mm-hmm. in, you know what I'm talking. It's, it's a actually quite ugly picture sometimes. So can I interject there with your heavy focus on genetics and, you know, you personally aspire to IGP having been two-time world champion and that's where your bloodline goes. How do you feel then when people come to you for a puppy and they say that they're going to do PSA or you know, a different sport, like what, what special parameters do you put on a puppy that you would then help choose for them? Noting that like you have bred yours specifically for IGP. Right. That's a really good one. <laughs> we can talk a lot on that one. Hmm. So on one hand, the saying a good dog is a good dog. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that the, you know, when, when the dog is good for one program, it's just a matter which program you want to do. Mm-hmm. I really don't buy how some French trainer will be like, oh, your dog sucks. He's not going to ever do, get to level three, but he can be a good IGP dog. Or the other way around. You can have some dogs that's coming to do IGP in the big German Shepherd Club or whatever, and they're gonna be no, he doesn't he doesn't have this, he doesn't he he can do Mondial Ring. That's probably better for him. You know, to go to a high level in any sport, high level is high level. But yeah, it, it's a I I believe that a good dog is a good dog. So if somebody's going to get a puppy and they want to do work, I will do my best to give them the puppies that are all around good dogs to do work. Okay. If I see a dog that I am questioning something, I cannot say he's not good for that sport, but he's going to do good in that sport. I mean, of course we can, if we're, if we take off, like if we group them in a different way and we say, okay, these are your protection sports and these are your fly ball and dog diving and whatever that that's easy. That's a different story. Sure. right? But to say IGP or PSA or, or he's pushing, but not pulling, I can see a good dog and 
you know, when we think about getting the good dog, as we said, is super important, but having who is teaching you, how much do you know? Do you think you know, or have you even tested yourself or you're just living in La La Land and you just think that you're going to be the next world champion? It's not a, it's, it's actually a really hard thing, you know? I think to some extent the social media is guilty of that, that mm-hmm. uh, people think that they can just do it themselves. Oh, I'm just going to watch these videos. I'm going to sign up there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to kill it. I think we really need to look for a finding a role model, finding, um, you know, kind of that saying replace the how with who, like mm-hmm. who can help me versus how, where, what do I read? Where do I watch? Like it's the whole section I, in the talent code, the role of the master coach, right? Like you must mm. have guidance. Yes. It is like, it's really essential because knowledge by itself, it, it's, I mean, you know how the, we say knowledge is power. It, it might very well be, but it's not leading anywhere. It's just not enough. Like you would have so many trainers again, especially with how social media is and how marketing is well done. Now. Everybody's teaching. I mean, when I say everybody, I really mean everybody and everybody has followers. And it's kind of mind boggling to even think how I can go to somebody to take me to a place that they've never been to, mm-hmm. or at least there are people that never been to, but they have taken people there. And this is a, a big concern when I place puppies, like, where do you go? Who do you, what are you going to do? Like, I will give you that genetic material, but where are you going to go? Are you going to drive five hours twice a week? Most likely you're not going to. So what are we going to do after that? Do you want to sell the puppy back or are you going to keep it as a pet? What are you going to do? It's so easy for people. They, they really, everybody thinks that they know and everybody thinks that they can make it. And once they start and they stick with it, things start to change and, and you come to realize that it's not easy or you're stubborn enough to keep fighting it, which we know of people like this, that they just keep blaming the dog, keep blaming something. There is always something to blame. It's very easy to blame something or you're impatient. You're not giving enough time, but this is, you know, like when you don't know and you don't have somebody that's been there to coach you, it becomes very problematic when you want to go to that level to be the best of the best, to go and compete with the 1%. To go to some club trials and do it, the recreational is a different thing. And so if I sell a dog, if somebody wants a working prospect puppy, I love those people. I am very suspicious always. Over the years, it's been, I've had people that would be calling me every day and just not leave me alone a day at a time until they get that puppy. Mm -hmm. 
and maybe for the next two months and all of a sudden they're in a whole different adventure in their life. That has happened so many times. And on the other hand, I've had people that it's like, I just want a pet. I mean, I can tell you, I have, a, you know, one of the girls that works with me when she first got her puppy and she, she's going to argue when she hears the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, we kind of joke around with this. And I mean, she, she was, you know, there, there's always people that, okay, yeah, I'm going to do something. And next thing you know, they get hooked uh-huh. and they, you know, that they will sacrifice that they would not hesitate to sacrifice whatever they need to sacrifice to accomplish what they, they are doing simply because the dog has the potential, the person has the talent and now they're all game. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it becomes beautiful. And oftentimes I, I have sell, sold a dog that uh, it was supposed to be just a dog, just a companion to go hiking and do things. And next thing you know, I'm like, Oh my God, they're like, all in. I keep my fingers crossed that the dogs is that dog. (laughs) Yeah. That's the trouble, right? So it's a, it's a difficult, like you never know what people, I mean, life is always brings its own surprises and takes you places. One thing with dog sports, especially it's a, it's really just like any serious sport that you want to do really good, not just recreationally. Endless sacrifices. It's just that that's what's going to happen. It's going to cost money and it's going to, and you need, you need people around that have been there. Not the people that bullshit, you know, the, the person that holds the flag in a world team. That's not the person, not the helper that's catching dogs at the trial. That's not the person. You need the helper that actually will prepare the dog for that person that's going to catch the dog in the trial. Right. Mm -hmm. But that comes with experience and with knowledge. And if anyone in that, or at least most of the people that stick long enough into any dog sports, they start to realize how to do it better. If, if they don't get sidetracked thinking that they're doing good and it's just bad luck, this trial and this trial and this trial, and then they're going to get the next dog. And yeah, we have those people too. Can I steer you, mate, away from genetics a little bit and more towards training? And let me set this up. And I want to, I'm going to choose my words very carefully. When I saw you speak at the IACP conference, what was that, 2018? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2018. Mm-hmm. You spoke about, Oof. you were talking about use of punishment and basically balanced training. And you said something I thought was very, very interesting. You said that you tried, you know, everything and you were really interested in what works because winning championships is important to you. And I have spoken publicly a lot about how the ethics component of balanced training versus positive only training, whatever, is taken care of for me in that the attitude of the dog is a component of success. Like it's not good enough for me that the dog can do the things. He must look like he enjoys doing it. And typically dogs don't lie, although that's another conversation we could have about how you could train a dog to look a particular way. Having done your online course and watched all the videos of you training dogs, this is where I want to set set the sort of tone for how we discuss it is it's very clear you have a deep love for dogs and the the way you talk to people about the way you talk 
the, the way you train dogs and having watched you train the dogs, it's very clear that you have a deep, I don't know the right words to say, but there is zero concern in my mind or, and I'm obviously, and I'm setting the tone for people to understand that your ethics is more in the corner of the dog than the people you train. I love the fact that in your videos that like, these are people who have come to you for training. You can be very sharp with them and very, you can cut them off and then be very, take your time with the dog and give the dog what it needs. So hopefully I've set the tone for people to understand that while we talk about balanced training and positive only training, it's not just about effectiveness in terms of success of winning trophies. It's about effectiveness of doing it in the right way that really truly benefits the dog. You spoke about how you did try and be positive only for a long time or for a, for a period and you couldn't be as effective as you are in a balanced sense. How far did you get with that? Like, I'm curious, was it a dog through its whole life? And was there a moment where you, like, because I started in dogs purely positive because I was reading a lot of books. I didn't have a dog to train on. And I remember sitting on the couch one day looking at my wife and going, I don't think this is working. Right. Like, I, and her looking at me going, like, <laughs> like finally, you have come to the realization that <laughs> I have been at the whole time. Right. When you decided, yep, I'm going to pursue this. What was the moment where you went, no, this isn't better for the dog? Using some pressure, some tools, whatever it is, is actually in the interest of the dog. Right. Yeah, this is a very cool topic to talk about. And um, I mean, thank you for the appreciation. I, I definitely, I mean, there's a lot of people say the dog always comes first. But for me, the respect and the way we treat the dog and respect the dignity of, of a living thing. It's it's of utmost importance. And I think if we are good in teaching and we understand what we have in front, so we're not trying to, you know, again, back to genetics, make a kid be astrophysic when he just potentially doesn't have that kind of capacity. But as far as the training, like I come, I mean, I train, I started in, in Bulgaria. That's where I'm from. And when I started, it was a Russian style, like military style dog training, which when you think about it and you try to follow the roots, goes all the way to Conrad most. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that's just very classical type of training, but poorly done. And when that's poorly done, it looks very unpleasant. So naturally when the whole movement in the eighties came of the positive training, many of us jumped on that train. I mean, what, how would you not? Like if you love dogs and you like training, if the, what has been sold to you is like, well, that's better to begin with. Mm. So I played for, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that I can train force-free better than, 99% of the four street trainers. Like I know that I can do that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm open to any bet to take on and very, very skillful and comfortable going that route. The thing is that there is a limit to it and the limit is very clear. It's not to say, you know, like every once in a while, somebody will send me a message and be like, well, there is this thread on social media and people are bringing all this 
force free trainers that have done amazing things in IPO monitoring. And, and I'm like, but what, what, what amazing things they have done? Have they actually competed against the best trainers and how did they do against them? And that kind of ends the conversation. Mm-hmm. There is clearly limitations. And I also think that in some ways, the force free is not necessarily a pleasant, emotionally uh, better way to train. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of a Malinois or a Border Collie or any, any highly motivated dog that only knows you can only tell them what is doing right, but not tell them what is doing wrong. That's a little bit of a torture. Mm-hmm. I have, I have in my, sometimes in my seminars to remember, like, I mean, I have the training without conflict. Sometimes it brings a lot of confusion, especially when I started in the nineties and going around the world. That was the time where, it, you know, it was really booming the force free stuff and, training without conflict somehow was leading people to believe that there is no aversive. So there is no penalties or there is no negative reinforcement and so on. So I would have people come to my workshops and presentations that are so purely positive and forceful. <laughs> and then I watched them firsthand over and over in Germany, in Belgium, in Finland, in, in whatever country you can think of, you know, and you realize that when they have to deal with a dog that it's highly motivated and super eager to do things and you're not telling them what is wrong, it becomes very frustrating for the dog. And that frustration leads to making the handler very frustrated. Yeah. And now I have seen force-free trainers that are screaming their lungs out, they're going to break the glass, the windows with their voices and end up just grabbing the dogs and, and kicking the dogs and just pure frustration. I'm like, stop. It's ridiculous what you're doing. Like you're just angry right now because what you know and what you want to do is not working, mm-hmm. but that's not the time to be mad at your dog. Your mm-hmm. dog actually wants to. It's not like he doesn't want to adapt to it. So ultimately it ended up, it's just very simple to me. You know, like if I, one of my favorite analogies that I give when I teach, like let's say we have some, I don't know, some Russian car and you guys, let's assume you have no idea what the Russian car is. And I, we go to a gas station and I tell you, I'm going to give you $1 million. If you within 30 seconds or a minute, you open, find where the tank is, the gas tank and open it and start filling up. You get a million dollars, but I, I'm just going to watch you. And if you go towards the right way, I'm going to praise you. But if you go the wrong way, I'm not going to say shit. You have very, very high motivation to get million dollars. You're going completely the wrong way. You're, you're about to take the spare tire out. I can watch you or I can slap you. Personally, if you slap me and point to what I need to do, because I have only 20 seconds left, I'll thank you. Mm-hmm. You know? So the, what we consider bad 
it's not always it's painted like our society is just like the you know the propaganda the ideology of force free it's a very it touches people's heart it's a very direct conversation are you good or bad person and you can only answer with a yes or no and you say yeah of course i'm a good person well then and so the story goes but the truth is whatever designed or programmed or how we came about on this planet, all living things are programmed to approach something that they desire, something that they like and avoid something that is dangerous for them and something that it's unpleasant and they don't like. This is the, probably the most fundamental law on our planet for living things including plants, including anything that is alive. And that's how our world works the best. And we're trying superficially to take a very serious, like fundamental programming away. And we have nothing to replace it with. It will be interesting if we actually say, well, we can replace it and that's going to work, but we don't have anything to replace it with. Mm. And the idea about, punishment working or not working. I, I think it's ridiculous questions and, and it's very misleading and it's a crazy thing because like, think about why, why would smart people would put the tribe before the truth? You know, like the, why would deep inside, you know, and when it comes to you really that what you need to do, if it matters to you, there is no question that anybody's going to use aversive if that's going to have some dramatic beneficial effect. But we are constantly saying how the problem behavior is always created by punishment and abuse. And it's like, no, in fact, most behaviors that are problematic or not problematic, all behaviors are reinforced by reinforcement. Mm-hmm. They, they don't become bad behaviors because they've been punished. They've been reinforced one way or another and they flourish. But again, it's the, the whole propaganda of, oh, I can talk for this for an hours and hours. <laughs> Let's drill down, Ivan, into how far did you get into it? That's what I'm really curious about. And was there an aha moment where you went like, this is not for me. Yeah, or you realize like oh, this is I, not true. This is not right. So we we had um like if I don't know if you guys have read or know about, but I, I did I think it was late nineties. I wrote a book, Advanced mm-hmm. Shoots Hunt. Mm-hmm. I've got it. And it was heavily influenced of that time. That was the time that I was uh Yes, you can see pictures with those on prone colors, but you can also read an extensive amount of the power of negative uh, punishment and how to apply it in sports and replace other punishment. That was time I was in California. I was, I was in the Bay Area and I had a very good group of trainers. I, you know, I mean, I, I used to go to all the clubs. It was really good times. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because I had a good playground. I had extensive number of variety of dogs and committed trainers to play around and experiment with. It was, it was really like my lab, my playground mm-hmm. to, to 
see what works, what doesn't work. We would give a dog a bite. We would stay for like five minutes to convince them to eventually let go so we can reward them. I mean, we've done all these things that people do. But at some point, I was like, okay, what am I trying to do? Am I like stuck now to follow an ideology or am I here to help the dog to pass through that difficult moment in his learning? And how can I do that? And the sad thing of force-free is that a lot of times when the dog is put in that kind of conflicting situation, is left alone to figure it out. And if you cannot figure it out, it struggles for a long time. Eventually, probably figures it out. And I don't like to keep a dog in that no man's land for, for no reason. I would rather guide the dog and help. I also like to have my dog do whatever the hell they want in their free time. Like, I mean, can be as ruly as they want in the house. They can play with anybody. They can do anything because I can snap my finger and say, knock it off. Mm-hmm. And there is a consequence to that and he will stop. Now, if I was to continue to do this in my force-free, all-positive way, everything will be challenging. Everything that my dog do, I will have to watch and guide and show him how this is not possible because this is going to get reinforced, this is going to get whatever. And there will be this high maintenance on top of what's going on on the competition and the training field in everyday life. It's going to be the same thing. And it's not that it's not possible, but I would rather have my dog just be a bad boy sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm perfectly fine with my dog being a bad boy until I say, okay, that's enough. Knock it off. You I know? agree with you hundred percent. I think it's in the lifestyle is where it really, mm. the turbo is attached yeah. to that. And that was for me, the moment I was sitting on the couch was I had, it was my first Malinois and he was a very dangerous dog and it was nerve issue, which, you know, I understand now and I didn't understand as well then. But he could do amazing things. Like he was probably better trained than my current dog in that he healed better. He could do more tricks because that was really what I was into. And I was into it. Like I loved doing it at the time. But people couldn't come into my house because the dog would fucking kill them. And it was, I remember sitting on the couch and he was loose in the house and it was fine with me and my wife. And a friend was coming over and we had the whole safety procedures, right? Oh, you got to call us five minutes out and we got to then deal with the where we're going to put the dog and the whole the whole bullshit. And then the dog figured out through. It's a big production. Yeah. You you just have to do all the time. Yeah. And then the dog figures out through classical conditioning that when my phone rings, that means someone's coming over and someone rang and the the dog goes off and it's not even there. And I remember just thinking, fuck this. (laughs) Like I have to tell this dog no. Mm. And then within a week, it's fixed. The problem's fixed. People can come in the house because I can say to the dog, hey, don't do that. And the dog goes, oh, okay, sweet. Got it. Right. I understand. And it was, I tried as hard as I could, man. And in the end, I realized it wasn't fair on the dog because his life was not improved by it. It was not improved at all. That's the bottom line, what you just said last year. I truly believe that it's not fair to the dog. I am all about, okay, yes, if, if it's easier and if you have the message and you're good at explaining and you get it, your message true, amazing, perfect. But if you're not and you're stuck and you're just being stubborn because you want to follow the ideology and 
disregard the dog's emotional state and not helping him in a better way, I have a big problem with it. You mm. know? And something I do um, want to say out loud, like I absolutely want to acknowledge, because I know we have a lot of listeners from across the full spectrum, is some dogs really can live their whole life never having experienced an aversive or a correction. Like some dogs just make good choices. And if you're not training to a really high level, you know, they're not you, a problem. Yeah. They're not a and problem within the household. So it's absolute, like in my opinion, I think it's absolutely possible, but that's probably a lot of genetic inputs to the dog in that that's just, that's just who he is. He's not a dog that's ever going to be that way. And so many people's family pets are that. They just make good choices. You manage them when they're young. You teach them what to do and they never get into that position. The issue is when you then try and pick up that template because it worked on those five dogs and put it on the sixth dog and go like, oh, you're the problem rather than that the others were, they were outside the norm. This is the norm, this guy over here. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like, a, just like with us, some people want to go in the ring and fight and some people want to do figure skating. And some people just want to paint and some people want to do all three. And it's a problematic thing because it comes with experience and knowledge. And especially when you're suppressed by your own ideology, you're not allowed to even see it any different way. But when you have a dog that is genetically, that it's bred, it's selected to be somebody. I love this because it's, it's one of my, things, you know, to train a dog to be somebody. That means that dog is highly self-confident. He doesn't mind to, you, you can confront him and if, in, he will stand his ground and these dogs have their places. This is what we like about them. They are actually somebody. They are not spayed. They are not neutered. They are not, uh, their lifestyle is not changed and manipulated to where we actually you know, like you can, you can have a lion and do everything from a little cub to prevent him to ever think that he's a lion and it can go well. But if you actually want him to be a lion, then you're going to have to interact in a different way. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is a problem when we have an agility trainer that says, oh, prone collars are the shittiest, most cruel thing. And, and you guys are just savages. And it's like, come to my field and teach me. Cause I don't want to, if you, if you have a way and if it's too expensive for you to come, I'll fly to you, whatever place in the world you are, I'll fly to you. You show me, I will gladly take it. Why would I not? Right. Mm. And the difference, you know, when you, when you deal with competing reinforcers, which you have PSA, you have IGP, you have all the, all the protection sports. This is the challenge. You actually are trying to make a dog go out of his mind, not to play woof, 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 give me the frisbee, but actually I will hurt you right now. Mm -hmm. And at the same time to listen And at the same time, not to fear nobody because the training is so resilient. And this is a big gap that we, uh, as trainers from different camps, we don't talk about. Yeah. That's a big problem. It's interesting when you're talking about that before, Ivan, I found myself these days trying to get into less arguments with people 
just for the sake of it over training tools. And when people are presenting me with their side of the argument, the question now I ask them, rather than make a statement back to them, the question I'm finding myself asking them more and more these days, is that an opinion or is that a fact? So I'm, I'm trying to get them to present me with the evidence rather than just verbalize me in front of a lot of other people. So what I'm then doing is putting the burden back on them to prove to me that what they're saying is there's evidence or there's backing behind it. Right. And one thing I, I did want to show you some appreciation to is over the years, I've especially when the internet was more forum-based, I really appreciate the fact of how much advocacy you did throughout the years because I followed you quite a lot and, you know, you and I have had conversations in part of large groups where you've been very much an advocate for tools but you've also presented a very salient argument about it as well. Like you've never got involved in the emotional basis of it but more so on the factual basis on it. And I really appreciate what you've done on that because I think you are one of the real in my opinion, I think you're one of the real internet pioneers of showing people what facts are. You know, like Pat's very much a, a factual-based person, you know, and there's been times where I've gotten emotionally invested in something and Pat's in, you know, like him and I have had conversations behind the scenes where he said, you know, you probably should more look at the evidence basis on it. And I think he's absolutely right. And that's one thing that I really appreciated in your early writings. Like you've been very proactive in getting people to look at the fact of it rather than the emotion around it. Thank you for that. There is a downside of sometimes it's actually quite disappointing that just because I, you know, I, I like to make a post. I like to get a little bit confrontational. I like to challenge people thinking and I would make a post about punishment or negative reinforcement mm. or electric color. And next thing you know, I would get messages from people that I, just flat out dislike it's, they just they, they they don't have any appreciation for for the living animal and i i would never do it in public but i have told many people like dude you and i are not the same not even remotely the same just because you and i hold a remote collar in the hand that that's as far as it goes, like we are not the same. I'm not protecting you. I'm not defending you. I'm actually just as much against you as uh, the other extreme. Mm. And I, I really, it's a very, it's a tricky subject because. Well, I think extremism is the sick end of the scale. That. It's, uh, you have all this. I mean, there's so many people that have so much following and they teach and they teach just wrong things like flat out wrong things. Like I can, I can dissect somebody's YouTube videos, not one, like all of their YouTube videos slide by slide. And I can talk about it and I can just completely ruin their life scientifically, but it's very difficult to do. And I don't know, like I, I don't know what is right and what is wrong to do with this, but I think all of us know that there are elephants in the room, mm. not one. We all know. And I think we're sitting back. And I think what is happening is these people are becoming more and more, okay, yeah, I'm going to be friend with you. You're doing your thing. You're doing great. So tell me that I'm also doing my thing and I'm doing great. And we go on. Mm. And ultimately there is the new trainers that see those 
marketers, which I, I don't even want to call them dog trainers. And I, I don't know, I get like, oh, what, what do we do? Like, what do we do? You know, I we think have, the only, the best way to combat bad ideas is with good ideas. And so really all you right. can do is put out evidence. Yeah. More content that is correct without addressing necessarily what's wrong and show the evidence. And that, and I think that exactly as, as you have discussed on this and go into great detail on the course is that's the role of competition is we, we all- right. Right. That's kind of where I was going, going with this. It's like, it, it really is the only way. If you, if you tell me that you're good, I would ask you to show me. And the way to show me is not show me training. Don't show me what you can do with a dog that has electric collar and you have a pouch of food and a clicker. I'm not interested in that. Go on a competition, any competition. I'm good enough to know. Like you can show me any obedience rally, like the silliest dog sport, and I will know how good of a trainer you are. But most of them are smart enough not to ever put themselves in that situation too. And it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate because the only way for me is that if you, if you say you're good, it's like, okay, well, how good you are? Well, I've trained hundreds of thousands of dogs and I have that many followers. That, that to me, it's nothing. Mm. Go on a competition field and show with one dog what you can do. Are you going to be as good as the top five? Are you going to be as good as the top 10? Are you going to have 20 excuses why it didn't happen? You will get exposed one way or another. Competitions really are our laboratory. This is where, you know, that, that's where you, after you talk, then you walk the walk, you know? You have to be able to. But even then, there is always ways to, again, there, there is always excuses and there is always, just as we talked about the horse races and the sprinters, it's like, oh, he beat me, but if I was to do this, I was the champion mm-hmm. and, and everybody believes it. I had a schooling lesson when I was a kid over the exact thing that you're talking about, which I, I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast before, but when I was a kid, I went out and bought a, a VHS tape on martial arts and I was training myself at home and I was kicking the bag, doing all the push-ups, running, jogging, everything you could think of doing, you know, doing the punches, the key eyes, the power punches, the whole lot. And right. I remember one day, there was a martial arts school that was uh, around the corner from me and, you know, I'd saved up some money and I said to my mum, I really want to go and, you know, join this martial arts club. And mum said, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, go and go and do it. And I went there and the, the instructor who, you know, I think he was ex-Vietnam veteran and quite a great guy in, in my opinion, but he pulled me aside and he said, so have you got any experience? I said, oh, yeah, I'm very experienced. And um, <laughs> he I said, uh, he goes, he goes, oh, okay. So you've had some fighting experience. I said, yeah, yeah, I've, you know, I've been over the last six to eight months, I've been, you know, really training and I'm, I'm quite proficient in punches and kicks <laughs> and so forth. And he said, oh, great. And he pulled another student aside and he said, so who was a white belt? And he said, so I'll get you to do a little spar as a demonstration, see how good this goes. Kid gave me one front kick straight in the guts and put me on my arm. <laughs> And I learned that lesson right there on that day is, you know, never let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities. 
it flattened me. It really floored me. Like I didn't know whether I wanted to go back there. I was so humiliated. But I, you know, my mum spoke to me and in some ways mums can be wise. And she said to me, don't let this stop you. Sure, it's embarrassing, but you're going to meet a lot of embarrassing things in life. But if you really want to get good at it, go back and pick the sensei's mind, asking more questions about it. What could you do better and how could you improve yourself? And I did. And, you know, like I really fell into a great culture with a good mentor early in life over doing things like that rather than, you know, suffering the humiliation. And I could have walked away and never really done anything or learned the lesson. But I think those things are very important is learn from it. Don't let it kill your enthusiasm. If you really believe in yourself and you've got something that you want to do and you're passionate about it, just say, okay, well, I got schooled today. This is an important turning point in my life. And, you know, you mentioned it, you and Pat were talking about it earlier before. I think that you can then turn your life around and say, well, this isn't a one-person game. This is a uh, a myriad of important people in my life, you know, like good mentors in my coaching and people who are, who are catching the dog for me and people who are laying my tracks for me and people who are getting up at five o'clock in the morning to do all these things for me. They're all, you know, I'm part of a network, part of a team where we can come together and we can do something really special with this, but I've got to be present to it and I've got to be open. And like Bruce Lee said, you know, the, the, your cup has got to be empty at that time. You've got to let the knowledge pour into you. Yeah, beautiful story and great parenting. Your mom, I mean, that's the way to go. It's uh, when you, you know, like the all those martial gurus with the no contact and they would, they would have the followers <laughs> and they will do things and they will be, just just after a while they they really start to believe in that they actually have this magic that nobody else does and next thing you know they they walk into a real gym and fight mr nobody and get beat up mm. within half a minute by nobody's because you know that there is a moment when you really start to believe that you're that good because Everybody around tells you that you're that good. And what we need to do, I think, in the dog training community is we need to call people, call them out. It's like, okay, yes, you're good. You're talking, you're whatever, but what exactly you're good in and go and go and kick ass. You know, why, why don't you go? I really think that if all of us create this environment where it's like, no, you, you cannot bullshit. Let's, let's show, but don't, don't show me training stuff. Go and go pick up a sport, whatever you want, pick up a dog, buy a dog, but go and show something because even when you buy a trained dog, no matter what it is. And I see you on the field with a dog, I can tell you if you're good or no. And I'm sure you guys can tell that too. It's not hard. The reason I get so passionate about this is because we have generation of trainers that are coming up that are hungry to learn and they're learning from the wrong people and they're really learning from the wrong people. And eventually they have to go the wrong way and some of them will find the path and some will stay lost. And ultimately, well, I wouldn't say even I was going to say ultimately just the dogs that they pass through will not be as good, but even the person themselves, you know, like there is so many ways to improve and be better. Again, it's not so much about how, but it's like, who can help? Mm. It's like a- how much time do I spend? Do I really spend all this time when there is a, a better way? 
but who tells me there's a better way? How do we find the, which way is better besides if we actually face each other and uh, on a competition? Mm. Yeah. It's a very slightly different topic, but it feeds into this and it, it really, it's what keeps going through my head. So I definitely want to bring it up is it's, this is the reason I get so upset and I've tried to make as many steps forward, especially through this podcast in trying to bring unity to the dog sport community where possible. So you probably don't know, Ivan, but I'm banned from every bite sport in Australia except PSA. And so I don't have, I don't have the ability to do that. And it really fucking grinds my gears because we hear all this and I get that. Like I want to be on the field more. Right. And some of the organizations in Australia, it's just simple because once your dog's bitten a suit, you're banned from the organization. You can't do IGP, right? For example. And I like, mm. I get why they did that. And I understand from a political standpoint, like there is video online of my dog going underneath, you know, a hard barrel sleeve to bite a leg, right? Now that's contextual and he knows the difference between like when he should sure. do that and when he shouldn't. But in other organizations, I was banned just because they didn't want me to compete. And so that's one of the big problems that I think does become a part of that. And we've got whole episodes on that. I don't want to go into it, but it, it is a, a problem when we compartmentalize each other like that, because then we're not comparing apples with apples. We're comparing apples to oranges mm. in that, like I'm only allowed to play this game. I can't compare myself to the trainers that play another game, right? Because I'm not allowed to play it. So it's very frustrating. I, I don't want to, make a, a big thing of it, but I, I want to acknowledge that for people listening because I know for sure I'm not the only person in that boat worldwide. And that's one of the big problems I think we face in, you know, never even mind positive trainers versus balanced trainers versus whatever. Like we divide ourselves into, Tribalism. no, I do IGP for this organization and you play the same fucking game mm. in a, under a different organization. So we are not the same. And it's like, dude, we got to look past these barriers and, yeah. and, and stop dividing each other that way. First of all, so that we can fucking protect each other because we're exactly. under fire all around the world. Like bite sports are under fire and, you spoke Sorry. earlier, Ivan, about, you know, like, show us what you got with a real dog. Well, if we just ban having real dogs, then that problem is solved, right? So that's one of the things we all need to protect each other in mm. that sense. But also then so that we can work together and learn from each other and enjoy each other in a whole nother way. Anyway, that's my rant. Yeah. No, no, no. This is like, uh, I'm glad you, you're talking about it and we should be talking about this all the time. Like, we should never stop talking about this because... Well, I, I'm not going to repeat what you said. I mean, but we, we really need to continue to talk about this and we need to find ways to look at the, the things we have in common and sure we can focus on the bad things or we can focus on the good things and the outcomes will be very different, right? That's super unfortunate. You know, it, it's one thing to have some person in, in Holland doing a study saying that, oh, this is horrible training. We know better and you actually should not even breed this kind of dogs because they're, they're not trainable. Like, I mean, they're, they're completely lost, mm -hmm. but you have people that we're in the same community. We're just, yeah, the one dog bites legs, the one dog bites leave. We, we're, we're in the same, in exactly the same place. 
And I don't mind, you know, we don't need to get along, but we need to stay together. Like we don't need to be friends. We don't need to be friends. It's perfectly fine not to be friends, but open the playgrounds. Like you gotta open the playgrounds. It's, It's essential. It's, it's from, from learning perspective. It's from like, this is, that's how we grow. Yeah. You know, like we all learn from everything from everywhere. You know what I think one of the biggest issues is we have that saying, you got to fight fire with fire. What a fucking load of shit. You, you fight fire with water. Right. And the problem is when you fight fire with fire, everybody just gets burned. That's mm-hmm. the idea. And so that's what happens in dog sports and in the dog community is we're like, I have to fuck you before you fuck me. Right. And then the, we're all fucked. Mm. If we just go like, Hey, I'm going to be as good to you as I can be in the hopes that you will then do that to me. But even if you're not, I'm going to continue to be that way because that's who I am. And I'm not going to let you change me. I think that we would have a lot different attitude, but we've all been programmed with this fight fire with fire bullshit. And it just burns everybody. Anyway. As you can see, it's, well, it's, I've accidentally upset myself. I, I think um, I, I think Benjamin Franklin summarized it very well when he said, hang together or be hung separately. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking oath. Or a shaman would say, let's just have some mushrooms. Or <laughs> every, every three months, all of you. Yeah. Yeah. Get along. Appreciate life. Like, learn. Yeah. Well, I think Will Ferrell says it best in, what's that movie, the basketball movie? His statement is just everybody love everybody. Everybody love everybody. You know, I think uh, to what you say there, Ivan, I I agree with you 100%, but the issue is, you know, you can't have fights with others when you realize there is no other. That's Mm. that's where it really comes down to, right? But anyway, that's maybe we should wrap it up there. It's been nearly two hours and we could go down a deep, dark rabbit hole at the moment. Fantastic conversation. By the way- Talking about the school, just real quick. I'm curious though, anyway. I know you did the Nepoponi, Michaels. Would you recommend my school to somebody that's the Nepopo? Like what, like, what would you tell some, like, what would you say? Like, what, what was your, the big takeaway or something so, of, of when you did mine? Or what were your expectations and how did you walk out of it? Honest to God truth, here's what I think. You remember we spoke a while ago at, that you said yours is very, very different to Napopo and couldn't really explain to me, and that's why I did the school because I was like, well, fuck, I've got to know, right? <laughs> and a lot of – and I understand why you say that because for me the big difference is the the punishment module. That is what was different to me, and I understand how that cannot be taught in isolation. You need all the front-loading so that it can be applied correctly. And I think that's why it's like that 18th module or 15th module or something like that. In that like you need to understand all these pieces before you can use this piece. And I agree a hundred percent. And I think that overwhelmingly there is big chunks of Napopo. And I think that Napopo is largely misunderstood by a lot of people in that they think that it's something that it's not. And there's a portion in the course where you almost perfectly describe Napopo. And so there's the idea of it is like at at its core is that there has to be pressure in a learning phase in order for you to be able to give a correction. 
if you don't use negative reinforcement in some way in teaching the behavior, when the behavior doesn't happen, you don't have the right or capability to then compel the dog into that behavior and have him understand it and it work, right? And that is the core of Napopo. And then the way that people train is quite individual from there. There's like, it's not a demand of Napopo that you use existential food. That's not a demand. That's the way that a lot of people do it. There's not an emphasis on play, but it doesn't exclude play. In fact, it's quite necessary in some aspects, but it's just not taught as a piece, whereas you do teach that as a, this is a critical component of it. But that's not to say that I can't pick up that critical component from you and apply it to that template there. And that's been an issue of mine in that I think a lot of people, I put out a video, you know, maybe a year ago saying like the way I learned to play with dogs was a high stakes game because it was with dogs that already knew how to do it and would kill you if they, if you did it badly, not kill you, bite you if you did it badly. Right. right, right. right. And, and so for me, and it came intuitively for me, I don't really have certainly in the, theoretical understanding of dog training and that kind of stuff. I didn't come into it knowing that kind of things and how to apply it. I had to learn that. I would say that I don't really have any natural talent with dogs. And so I find teaching the science of it very easy because I had to learn that. Whereas playing with dogs, I I was intuitively good at. And so I find teaching that difficult because I never had to learn it. It just was natural. And so it's not something that I focus on. So when we say- because we are all intuitively ready yeah, to it. Exactly. And so for me, I think with the a lot of people say, you know, oh Nepo Po is this and that, and they talk about the way that you reinforce. And I say, no, it's just Po. Like that's up to you how you do that. The Nepo is negative reinforcement and the last Po is positive reinforcement. And there's a million different ways you can provide that. And that's up to the individual. But what I will say of your course, mate, was the punishment. I mean, I called you straight away. You know that I called and said, yeah, okay, fuck. There's a hole in my game. I didn't know I had. And the way that, and I had an issue with my dog that was not a big problem. And it's just a bandaid. I've been, he would have lived his whole life. We would have continued to compete and everything would have been fine. We would have still been successful, but we wouldn't have got as much points because I had an issue that I didn't know how to fix. And I've, I, I see that video. We did one more session after the video. I sent you problems fixed. It's gone. So uh, you walked out happy with. For me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. And, cool. and you know, cause everybody asks and that's uh, what I say is that there is, there's absolutely value in doing both. I, it's not that because I'm talking to you and that this is a conversation right, right, that will right, go right, out that I wouldn't choose. Right. I would never steer anyone away from Nepopo towards you and I wouldn't steer anyone away from right. you towards Nepopo. And, you know, truth is, Bart's been an amazing mentor to me for a long, long time and so much of what I have I, I owe to him. Yeah. But there's there's yeah, value in mean both. That way either. Yeah, I, I was just really... Yeah, that's because, my take on it, mate. And, and Because, yeah. I think there's so much value in both, in all of it. I just think that- I think you described it to me in a way that it was two halves of a whole. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I think, you know, you and yeah, you've been doing this for 40 years and so is Bart, and you develop your own flair. And I think there's like, this is very much my personal opinion and anyone listening, it's, this is me, but so much is the same because that's the fundamentals of dog training. That's not going to change. But the way you do it specifically, the flair in which you do it is you, but that's you and that's Bart, that's not me. 
and that's not any one of your students. And I think that's where I see in dog training is kind of the issue with people following the best is that they try and emulate the exact things that you do rather than looking at what is the fundamentals of it. And that's the important part of both schools is where people who go through the schools really go, oh, that's just a weird quirk that you have. That's not important. That's just you. And it's the same as you see all these people around the world fucking double clicking. It drives me insane (laughs) when you see people double click and there's like, there's some magic in the double click. And when you ask Bart why he double clicks, he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes, I'd like to double click, right? Like it fucking doesn't mean anything, but that's a marker that you see a lot of people like, oh, there's some magic in it, right? Or when they say super. Yeah, well, we see that. We we see there's so many people in Australia that train their dogs with some bizarre European accent. Like, I get you. Oh, finer younger, (laughs) super. (laughs) Like, and it's like, no, you've missed the point. Like, show the dog you're happy. You don't, like, the dog doesn't inherently speak Dutch, right? Like, so. so, Commanding your dog in Australian in like in English and Australia now is a, a minority, especially in the sport dog world. But I get that. There's value in that. I understand it. Like I, I think there's certainly just giving your commands. I think there's value in using separate language for many, many reasons. But when you reinforce your dog and you go like, you speak some other language while you're <laughs> playing with the dog, that's where I'm like, oh, that's pure emulation. You're just copying someone else without mm-hmm. actually understanding what they were doing. Right. So that's my, Which, that's my take. Yeah. On. Yeah. It's very true. It is funny, but in the same time, you kind of, if, if that's what motivates and excites the trainer, it's like, okay, I'm doing it like them. Exactly. exactly. You know, so I'm actually the other, I, I tell my, most of the people I train with, I'm like, just, just whatever you want. I mean, if you, nothing wrong to use your language, you don't need to, just not, you know, whatever you want. Like, it's no big deal. It's really either way whatever you want, but don't, don't find magic in one way or the other, but Mm -hmm. it's not there. It's not there. So I'm glad you asked me that, mate, because hopefully people listening (laughs) no longer start. Like I get a private message about this every day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do one. Which one should I do? And hopefully they just listen to this. And I say, there is so much value in both. And when you, if, if you get the opportunity to learn from you or Bart or Michael or anyone at that caliber, you're fucking crazy not to take it. And I can't steer anyone one way or another other than to say that it's so much value in it. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, plug the course because we've got you on here. How When's the next one start? How do people sign up for it? What's the process? Or is that an Eric job? Actually, yeah, I I wasn't ready for this. We we start um, the 29th of this month is the last date to, to sign up and we start the course February 1st. Okay. So people, by the time this comes out, people will have missed that one. So there'll be another one in two or three months so or something, right? One, exactly. It's, it's about three months away, but, uh, and yeah, you've got a website training without conflict.com. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and you can find a lot about the, the school and everything. And you can, anybody that's interested about the school can, contact us we will love to talk about it so i mean we're definitely excited to talk about it so anybody that has questions shouldn't feel that oh i'm cannot talk to ivan you can <laughs> if, if you want be a dog trainer and you have interest it's the only way you you gotta you gotta stay within the circles you gotta interact and you gotta you know have the guts to and the courage to 
to chase your goals, you know, mm-hmm. but if you never think that, oh, I, I cannot do that or I'm, oh, it's too much money or it's like, oh, he's not going to respond to me. Of course, you're setting up yourself to fail. It's, it's one of those things. It's kind of like going back to competition even real quick. You know, you would have two people pretty much or two dogs with the same qualities and but the one has the confidence that's going to go and it's going to win the championship and the one's going to go and do its best the yep. outcome's going to be different right from where you, your mind is you know mm-hmm. and and i think it's a lot of people not a lot of people we do get plenty of emails and plenty of contacts and we definitely make sure that we respond to everybody and answer us answer a lot of questions but I know that there are people that are, I don't know, hesitant, shy, whatever, that just don't have the confidence to approach and be like, hey, what am I going to learn? So whomever's listening and is interested in what we teach, feel free to contact. We will get back to you. We'll talk to you. We are friendly people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, on the topic of money, what I'll say about your school, Bart School, Michael's, is you're buying 40 years of experience. It's a fucking bargain at any cost. Mm. Like you remove the trial and error. You and the others have done the trial and error and are now like, okay, here's what works and save yourself 40 years. And, you know, like last week we are talking about the cost of a working dog over his life. Buying 40 years of experience at $10,000 is a fucking bargain. When you break that down to a per day amount, buying it at 40 years, it's, that is a fucking bargain. Especially when you want to be the best you can be, you're not going to, I promise you, you're never going to achieve that by joining Facebook groups or going to low quality workshops of like, like that's not like if you seriously have intentions to learn, be smart to research and think who you want to learn from, because it's, it's different, you know, like, like you will have, like, I always say this with, whatever, let's do martial arts. You know, you can have, you can have some gym right around the corner and somebody's going to be teaching you Kung Fu. Nothing wrong with Kung Fu, but if you really want to fight or if you really want to go and compete, you can do a research and you can probably go and do something else. That's going to be far more beneficial to you. And then if you have one place that it's so comfortable and it's so right next to your door, but the guy is a, I don't know, purple belt and it's a little sketchy to begin with and you need to travel or pay a little more money, but actually learn properly from somebody that knows what they're teaching you. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I am speechless. This is sometimes really, it's like, and a lot of it is the money. One is the marketing and the popularity and the followers and, and so on. But a lot of it, it's also the money. It's like, oh, but that's free content. Sure, mm-hmm. it is free content. And I wish that you don't read or listen or watch it just because it's free, you know. But it's the time we're living in. It's a strange times. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's entertaining. In a way, it's dangerous. The truth is there is good information. But for somebody that has no idea what to pick, they will pick the wrong stuff. Well, it's going to cost you one way or another. Right. Eventually, you Mm. will be, for sure, 
Yeah, it'll either cost you an experience and time or it'll cost you financially. If you know of a mentor that's got the rungs on the board and you still choose to ignore their teaching, well, that's on you. If you want to go down that path yourself and take that path out, you know, four years when you could have got it within six months or so and you could have been well on your way to getting exactly what you wanted, but you were hung up on traveling that little bit further or paying that little bit extra, that's on you. Yeah, yeah. Quite often, quite often. And it's a, in a way, it's very interesting for me to watch the person, but also I kind of feel for them because, you know, I, I would have people coming just for a lesson or just for a seminar. And within a day or half a day, they start to see that things can be different and it can be easier. Like the whole idea with, dog training is to actually simplify, not to make complications. Mm -hmm. Anything that gets complicated, it's difficult. The the more tricks, the more tools in your bag, the more you keep adding, the more you keep not really teaching directly, but explaining, no, I'm going to create the same thing, but we're going to do it indirectly. I'm going to, okay, yeah, you're going to look into the blind, for example, if you search for the helper, but we're going to teach you to look because we, there is food or toy instead of actually just really teach them to search for the helper and, and things like that. But there, there is always people that would come and, and within a day they will be like, okay, so I, I just trained for five, six years and I thought I was on the wrong path and everything just crumbled in half a day (laughs) what do i do now but this and i'm not saying this just because of me this this any any trainer that is capable and skillful deals probably with these people and those people are the people that are looking for the freebies of followers on all the groups and all this and thinking that they will be smart intelligent enough to put the pieces together and do some great things ahead of them until reality hits and they realize that they're absolutely lost. Just like the, the no contact martial arts. It's like, no, don't, don't you dare think that you're going to go and fight somebody. It's going to be bad outcome for you. Like it's guaranteed. I've got one word on that. McDojo life on Instagram. Do yourself a favor, folks. Go to Instagram, McDojo Life, and you can watch exactly what Ivan's talking about. They highlight like there's almost somebody every day from around the world where it's one of those fictional spiritual martial artists going over and touching people and then running over and throwing themselves through a wall. It's incredible to watch that people really, you know, the power of the mind that people really believe this. And that expands out everywhere, you know. So like, I won't mention his name, but he's not in the dog industry, but- in the like gunfighting world, you even get that. Oh yeah, like people dressing up like commandos. No, no, no. People coming to like putting out instructional DVDs on how to gunfight, and it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm. Like, this is how you change your magazine with your if you're right-handed with nothing but your left hand and your left foot, and it's like, come on. This is this is a part. This is the phenomenon of how it actually works. This is exactly how it works. So you will watch it and you will tell Glenn, you gotta see this. Glenn sees, yeah, he's yeah. gonna tell more people. Next thing you know, the video has two hundred thousand hits, yeah. and now the kid is like, 
that must be the better video because it has a yeah. huge follower compared to this one. Yeah. This is the, the, the sad part of social media, how, how it's set up and how it's working. And I hope that I hope some algorithm, some, something needs to change, like really something needs to change. And it's not just dog training. Just as we're talking about it, it's not just dog training. Mm. Just because you're an influencer doesn't mean that you're an influencer. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're pushing people in the right direction. That's, that's right. Sure. Yeah. All right. You are an influencer, but you're not pushing people in the right direction. That's yeah. The right. Mm. All right. I'm wrapping it up. That's it. Thanks, Ivan. Thank you so hey. much for making time for us. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Super busy. And after we had to do some back and forth, but we got a slot and I really appreciate you making the time, mate. And also Eric for helping us get it all together. Thank you very much, Eric. Eric is the best. Thank you guys for coming me. I know it's <laughs> the been- sneaky voice from behind. <laughs> <laughs> That's where people are like, hang on, has Eric been there the whole time? Hey, yes. Eric, it's your big moment. Say hello. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate, because I know that you helped get us together and make all this happen and help, uh, you know, like Ivan with all the technology and everything like that. So, you know, it's been an absolutely phenomenal conversation, one that I've really enjoyed. Like I've actually sat back and just been an observer on this because it's been a wonderful thing to let Ivan have the floor and talk about his experiences, which we're really, really appreciative of. And, And like I said, Eric, thank you for, you know, for the backwards and forwards between getting everything going. I really, really appreciate you helping me track this all together. I don't know what Ooh, Ivan pays you, Eric, but he should up it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we, we take care of Eric. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, and do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A couple of bucks a month, three bucks a month gets you an extra episode in there, but you could give as much as you like. And if you... Yeti just brought out a dog bed. If anyone wants to buy me one of those, it's totally okay. You Why could do, you do just that. Get one? Buy one for Glenn as well. Uh, <laughs> sounds wonderful. Another way you can support the show is jump on a Teespring, get yourself some cool merch, a world tapestry, and a so tapestry. forth. Yes. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is if it's just sort of general information, do it in the Facebook group. That's the Canine Paradigm discussion group. But if it's personal nature, get in contact with us directly. That's it. Goodbye. I can't believe you're going to make Ivan listen to our song. I'm doing it. (laughs) He he can dance to it too in the background.